welcome to episode 268 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Dr. Doug McGuff, co-author of Body by Science, a research-based program for strength training, bodybuilding, and complete fitness in 12 minutes a week. Dr. McGuff also owns the gym Ultimate Exercise, where his clients follow the aforementioned 12 minutes a week high-intensity regime. Hey, Doug, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Doug, really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you. Um, uh, how about we just get started by having you give us a little background on yourself, um, both okay. in terms of uh, as your educational background and how you got into uh, researching this, this type of stuff in particular. Okay. Um, my interest in this kind of uh, training predated any interest in science and medicine. I really got into strength training in general and high-intensity strength training in particular Around age 14 or 15, I was um, I, I became involved in the early Nautilus training uh, that was uh, put forth by Arthur Jones back in the 70s. It was enormously popular. At the time, I was uh, a bicycle motocross racer, and I sought out weight training to improve my performance. Um, I traded janitorial services at a Nautilus gym, and while cleaning up the place one weekend, I found the textbook or the or the guidebook for that kind of training in the office and was allowed to take it home and read it. And from that point forward, I was hooked. I was especially hooked uh, because it made such a dramatic improvement in my uh, sporting performance. And then I just did a deep dive from that point forward that carried my interest into biology, which therefore carried my interest into medicine. Um, and I continued to train throughout my education and throughout my career. Um, I went to medical school at the University of Texas Medical School at San Antonio. I graduated in 1989. I actually, my specialty interest became emergency medicine uh, simply because that's what appealed to me during medical school. I thought I was going to go down a pathway of something like orthopedics or physical medicine, but I, I found such an attraction to emergency medicine, that that's what I ended up doing my specialty training in. Um, and I taught in emergency medicine residency for three years after I graduated, and then I came here to South Carolina and have been practicing uh, community emergency medicine in a private group since 1995. And 1997 is when I opened Ultimate Exercise, which was just this ongoing passion. I opened it as a business. Um, and it's sort of a hobby gone wild. And that's what ended up allowing me to um, delve deeper into this and ultimately end up uh, co-authoring a book with John Little on the whole experience. Um, who is, who's John Little? Does he have a special background? Yeah, yeah John Little's just a high-intensity training geek like me. Okay. Um, and he runs um, Nautilus North in um, Ontario, uh, which is his high-intensity personal training center. And he has done um, – he, he's actually a movie producer, and he's written several books on high-intensity strength training, both on his own in conjunction with Mike Mincer, who is a high-intensity training guy. Um, so he has authored several books that predated Body by Science. Uh, but he approached me about uh, co-authoring a book um, – Back in, and we started this probably about in 2007. The book actually came out in 2009. Right, right. So, you, you, now 
you, the, the, it's called body by our, uh, you know, body by science, right? Our, um, yes. Make sure that okay. So the, the background is that you, you know, everything is supported by sort of key scientific findings. Were there moments when you're doing research, we did, we realized that there, there could be a complete framework for this stuff. I mean, cause I imagine you're probably doing a little bit of research, but Research is emergency medicine, but your training is, you know, probably more ad hoc, like most athletes, right? I mean, yes, kind of, yeah. We read an article here, you do this, but when did you go? When did you take the deep dive and say, okay, I'm going to start researching this like a scientist and see what I can find? Well, to be totally honest, it did not go that way at all. Okay. And I think that's particularly true in any area of um, innovation. We always like to have this notion in our head that the science precedes and is the foundation for innovation. But I think what you'll find is if you really look at any innovation and improvements um, in life, what we find is that the innovation precedes the science and then the science follows. And that was certainly true in the realm of high-intensity exercise. we have been tinkering with and innovating with this concept of training for decades before any scientific research started to be done on it. And, you know, whether you're talking about electricity or computing, what you'll find is that tinkering and innovation really precede the science that then later comes along to support it. And that was the case here. Things that I have always kind of believed but could not prove and things that I've always advocated and what I've incorporated into my own training um, predated by a long period of time any scientific literature that was able to support it. And only at the time we started looking into writing Body by Science, probably for the three to five years preceding it, was there actually start to starting to accumulate a body of scientific literature that we could tap into to write a book that we would dare to even call Body by Science. So um, we were kind of waiting for that literature to accumulate, and then we exploited it in the writing of the book. So it's sort of actually reverse-engineered from what the title suggests. Right, right. You know, it. I, I haven't done that much. Uh, uh, I, I would research into the science of, of training. You know, my my... Uh, background has been like most athletes, which is that, you know, you, you hear about a study here or there, you try some things, you know, there, there seems to be a consensus, you know, view on what's the best way to do X or Y. But, um, when I would look at some of the research, it would seem like it's pretty thin in a lot of areas. Like it, I mean, I would imagine that's hard to get grants for doing this kind of research at any large scale. Like the sample sizes are small, and, you know, you're, you're going yeah. back to one or two studies. Oh, there's a study in 1987 in Finland, and there was a study at the University of whatever in 1998 that had 12 feet. Like, that's better than nothing, but it's like, I mean, I imagine as a, as a scientist doing work or research, you'd be looking at this paper as going, geez, can I really use this? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on the availability of science for exercise and, uh, I don't know, fat, everything from exercise to nutrition and fat loss? Uh, there's very little of it, to be honest. And really, um, all usage of science in the field of exercise currently and in the past is what I call Mikey Likes It. Mm-hmm. And you may not be old enough to remember the Life Serial commercial. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, I am. 
<laughs> yeah, that sucks, doesn't it? Yeah. But yeah, you know, you pour the cereal in the bowl, you give it to the little kid, and it's like, wow, Mikey likes it. He really likes it. Right. Um, that's kind of how science and exercise merge together. And that includes me and the literature that I cherry pick to make body by science. Um, you are really reverse engineering and trying to find the science that supports your preconceived notions of what you think works. And that's the way it is for me. And that's the way it is for all of exercise science. Um, and I think that's just a requisite nature for all this. I think where I like personally to think how science fits into what I advocate is I really have tried in the book to take some understanding of basic science of, of the more fundamental science and say, you know, this makes sense on this level for these reasons. And then there are people that have done some research um, that we have tapped in the book that can kind of bolster that a little bit. But make no mistake, it's not raw basic science that has provided us with data that I then constructed this exercise concept out of. It's really exactly the opposite of that. Um, I've constructed an exercise protocol and paradigm in my head based on the work of other people. None of this is original stuff that I have ever done. I've not done anything original in this field at all. I've just taken work of other people that appeals to me for reasons that I think fit basic science. And then I found a sprinkling of the literature that's out there that supports it and have tried to um, package it in a way that's usable for the end user. Right, right. What, now, while we're on the topic of science, I, I'd like to ask you uh, about this specifically, which is, you know, there's, a, uh, you know, you, 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 there's research that will say, like, X, Y, and Z works or whatever, but then it seems that a lot of the effects are very individualistic. So something that will work for some person may or may not work all that well for somebody else. I mean, I guess maybe that's just something that all doctors, for instance, know about the human body, that everybody's different. But it seems like there's pretty – how well certain things work. I mean, what are your thoughts on sort of that individual, just like individualized, there's individualized medicine, there's individualized, I don't know, training programs or whatever. Um, I think that's true to some extent. However, I also think that um, you can get a, a good broad concept of a, of a training principle and apply it across a broad population. Where this gets tricky is also where it gets really, really simple. And the simplicity comes from this fact is that, you know, each and every one of us are at the tip of a spear um, that is supported by a gigantic pile of dead people. And what I mean by that is we are at the spear tip of a very refined evolutionary process and we um, and, and skeletal muscle and our metabolism in general are very, very adaptable. That's why such a broad range of different exercise concepts and protocol work. And that's because we are a very adaptive organism. Right. And simply what I have tried to put forth in Body by Science is something that works on a very effective and time-efficient manner. 
but that doesn't mean that something that involves lower intensity, longer duration, higher volume can't, in quotations, work. Um, it all works because we are such an adaptive organism. And skeletal muscle it has such incredible plasticity that it can accommodate all sorts of differing exercise protocols. So I'm never going to be here to tell someone that, you know, your training concept won't work. That's, that's never going to be true because we are such an adaptive organism. But we can exploit that adaptability to get a lot of bang for the buck out of a very time-efficient exercise protocol. And I think there are very rational arguments for why doing things in a high-intensity and time-efficient manner may be an optimized approach to getting the sort of adaptations that most people want out of an exercise regimen. Right, right. So I guess this probably be a good good opportunity for you to just uh, tell us, give us a real quick rundown of, of what the the twelve minute per week workout is and why you think it, you know, why the science supports it. Yeah, and realize that that comes off the cover of the book. And one thing I've learned by self-publishing books and then doing publishing through a national publishing house is the one thing that publishers do well, or actually there's two things they do really well. Uh, one is distribution and the other is uh, book titles and covers. Right. And that 12 minutes once a week is something that they tweezed out of all the material in the book to put on the cover. Um, so, in a nutshell, what this exercise protocol involves is lifting weights in a very high-intensity fashion. And we achieve that intensity by using a protocol that involves lifting and lowering the weight very slowly and smoothly. And the purpose of that is twofold. One is to produce a continuous and uninterrupted load on the muscles to entrain a deep and meaningful level of fatigue very, very quickly, but also to do that in a way that is very safe, that's not going to bring about any injury. And the neat trick of this is that by lifting and lowering slowly and entraining a deep level of fatigue quickly, you literally become too weak to hurt yourself. You're lifting in a way that deprives you of acceleration. And force is mass times acceleration. By depriving yourself of acceleration, we're decreasing the forces that your body is encountering in the process of trying to create this very powerful exercise stimulus that is wrought from rapid and deep fatiguing of muscle. Um, so unlike other, area, other types of high-intensity exercise, this actually becomes safer as it gets harder. So if you're doing any other form of exercise, if you're doing um, high-intensity sprint intervals, if you're doing CrossFit, in order to raise the exercise intensity, because of the modality that you're using, you're also raising the forces that your body encounters. And you're raising the forces that your body encounters as you become more fatigued and more clumsy, and therefore more prone to injury. What this protocol does is it takes all of that kind of intensity, brings it to the body, 
but uses a protocol where as you're becoming more and more fatigued, you're actually becoming safer and safer and less prone to um, bring injury upon yourself. Right, right. So, and, and there, are, I, I believe there are five primary exercises that you have. Yeah, and, and those are not chosen because they're an end-all, be-all, or the only way that you should ever do this. But in the book, what we're wanting is a platform where a person can try this exercise protocol and use five movements that are going to allow them to experience it in its in its full expression, so to speak. And we choose those five movements because they're five big movements that are simple to perform, compound, multi-joint movements that mimic normal body motions. So that the person that's trying these movements is going to cover the entire musculature of their body, but also they're going to be able to use movements that are simple to perform so that their concentration can be focused on doing the hard work and not so much on um, movements that are complex, tricky, and are going to rob their concentration for a complex motor skill rather than a simple motor skill that they're able to do with a high degree of intensity. So that the focus of the individual with these big five movements is going to be on doing hard work and not how complicated the movement is, if that makes any sense. That doesn't mean that as someone progresses along in this program that they can't do other movements or incorporate other things. They're going to require more concentration and more complexity. But we use that as our starting point because they're big movements. They're going to deliver a lot of bang for the buck. You're going to cover the entire body. But they're movements that a beginner can do and not sap all their concentration on the skill of the movement so that nothing is left over for them to be really focusing on doing the hard work. Right, right. Um, so, you know, for instance, on the, the opposite extreme might be the Olympic lifts, right? The, the clean and jerk. Right. And things like that, which would take, you know, you would actually need to work with a Olympic lifting coach. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And, and, and we're making, and we try to make in the book a very distinct separation between physical conditioning, which is basically loading the muscles in such a way that you produce rapid and deep fatigue in the targeted musculature versus skill conditioning, which is what Olympic lifting is a sport. It is not a mechanism of producing muscular adaptation by creating deep, deep fatigue. It's a sport. You're trying to demonstrate strength, whereas what we're describing in the book is a protocol whereby you bring a stimulus to the body in order to create strength. Right. Olympic lifting is to demonstrate strength. And the problem with um, people that try to use those sort of movements as a fatiguing protocol is they were never meant to be that. They were meant as a, a competitive event where you demonstrate skill and strength simultaneously. If you use an Olympic lift in a fatiguing protocol, you are begging to get hurt because you have a complex motor skill with a very heavy weight that you're moving at a high rate of speed with a very long moment arm of the you know, bones and joints in your body. 
And that was meant to be done as a one-time lift. You do it over and over again as a fatiguing protocol. As you get fatigued, your form's going to fall apart and you have a high force activity or movement that is going to exceed your body's structural capability as you generate the level of fatigue that, um, that that can do. I think that, you know, there's, there's been a lot of criticism of CrossFit for that, right? You have a lot of people doing um, yeah, yeah. power cleans for fatigue and, and things like that. And you, you see it on, you see, you can see compilation of all these sort of CrossFit fails on YouTube. You know, yeah. Are, yeah. Which is, and, in one hand, it's funny. In the other hand, you're like, ow, oh, like I feel bad for that person, you know, cause, but yeah, they're doing, you're doing exactly what you're, what you're, right. your eyes and, against the doctor, you know. And I have, I have a real, and people get angry at me at this. I have a real admiration for CrossFit because in my own exercise that I do, even though my philosophy is very different from them, I think that above and beyond the exercise stimulus and the adaptation that it can produce, I think there is also intrinsic value in doing really hard things. And I think that's what CrossFit um, really elevates to a very high level. I think that's why it appeals to, you know, these special forces type people. You know, your Johnny Quest type people really gravitate towards that because they understand there is an intrinsic value to doing hard things. I just like to bring about that level of hardness to people in a way that's not going to, you know, give them a slap injury, tear their rotator cuff, blow out their ACL, fill in the blank. Um, But I still think there is immense value in just being able to push your limits, not so that you can feel that you have no limits, but so that you actually know where they are. Right. Most people never approach that in their life. That's true. You know, I know, I know half a dozen people or so who do CrossFit and they're, they all just kind of get sucked into it because of for those psychological reasons. I mean, they're all in incredible shape and they're all incredibly motivated because of exactly what you're talking about, the, the persistent challenge of it. I mean, even the, even the people who achieve what people or even normal athletic people would consider amazing levels of fitness, they're yeah, still like, yeah, yeah I still can't even compete. I can't even compete in a citywide competition. I'm, you know, I can, you know, squat, you know, 400 pounds or I can do 30 pull-ups, but I'm still not even ready to compete. I'm still not even close. And you're like, right. Really? That's amazing. Right. And it is, and it is. But what you got to recognize is that what you're doing when you apply that kind of conditioning protocol in combination with a competition is you're invoking a weeding out process. You're turning a conditioning program into buds training. Okay. When you do BUDS for um, indoctrination into SEAL training. What's, wait, wait, what's BUDS training? BUDS training is the indoctrination course for people that are applying to become Navy SEALs. Oh, okay. That's where you go down to San Diego and they torture the shit out of you for six weeks on the beach and make you do sit-ups and carry logs and you know go out in the freezing water and do these incredibly brutal exercise training regimens. But the purpose of BUDS is not only, very little of it is to produce physical conditioning in the recruits. It's actually a weeding out process to find out who has the willpower to continue on with the training versus who does not. 
and it's a weeding out process. Well, CrossFit training done as competition is also a weeding out process. You're going to find the people that have the genetic predisposition and talent to function at the local level and then function at the regional level and then become Rich Froning, who is, you know, an absolute beast. So, th- I mean, that, that brings up a really interesting question. I, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, I think, I think uh, Justin mentioned, mentioned this to me when talking about, um, talking about the book. And I was thinking, like, how would, you, how would you prove it one way or the other? I mean, so, you know, if you get, you know, you get a group of people and you say, well, these people have gotten incredibly strong and fit. You know, these guys, these, this group of people have become Division I athletes or these group of people have gone professional in the NFL or whatever. And it didn't have anything to do with the, tra- the training so much as it was, ge- it was the training plus the genetics. And yeah. arguing at all that, you, the genetics aren't an incredibly important factor. But I'm wondering, like, you know, how would you prove or not prove or disprove, I should say, that you can take someone who's 165 pounds, five foot ten, and add on 60 pounds of functional muscle to them over like a three-year period, um, one way or the other. I mean, is there? A, how would you set up a, a, a study to, to prove that? Well, assuming you can get the grant money for something like that, you know. Well, for one, you won't get the grant money um, for that because. Um, you know, at least not government grant money. Mm-hmm. Who, who would, you know, who would possibly fund that from a government funding source? I mean, and the thing you got to realize about granting the grant process for scientific studies is really who gets grant money when you apply for a grant. It's really mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? You got to signal to the people giving out the money that you are willing to give them the answer that they want. Mm-hmm. And that's why they call it grant whoring. And I mean, so much of the scientific literature is simply that. Um, to answer your question, I mean, it would take for a study to have enough power to ferret out all the genetic variation that determines whether someone can gain that kind of muscle or not would require, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of subjects to, to kind of have the statistical power to weed that out. Um, there are people that genetically, based on their genetics, based on what phenotypic expression of interleukin-15, of the angiotensin-converting enzyme, of interleukin-8, of a whole gamut of different genes, a myostatin gene, what their level of expression of those different genes is some people, no matter how perfect you make their protocol, will never go there. And some people, you can get them, you know, throwing bags of sand into the back of a truck and will go beyond that. So to try to control for protocol, you're going to need to know the training subject's genotype specifically And then you would have to know that with twins and do twin-based studies to ferret out protocol-related issues. And then there's the whole issue that people tend to self-select for protocols that fit their genotypic expression the best, if that makes any sense. If if I could just interject, I mean, isn't the point that Jason's making that um, you can't, 
so it, it's not a it's not a useful argument for you to use because you can't really prove it one way or another. That one protocol is the best over another. Well, just that, is that no, just just that um, ge- genetic. You know whether genetics truly should be used in the argument at all. I, I just don't think that you can not use it in the argument because um, a lot of times the apparent success of one thing versus the other may have a lot more to do with that than with the actual protocol itself. So I guess, in essence, um, if he's saying that, I would say I would have to agree. But the converse is also true. Right. It's just, it's just frustrating, not just in, just in terms of science in, in general sometimes, but when, when you get in situations like this where you really are in a situation where you can't prove something very easily. Right. You know, it's like, you know, it's just, and we get to... And this seems to happen quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of these sort of epistemological crises in science. Like, how do we know what we know? You know, and you, you hear that happen in physics a lot. I mean, every month, every, I don't know, maybe every few months comes out, there's a new thing is you know, about dark energy or dark matter or black holes real or whether well, they're not real or, you know, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, what, you know, what the hell do we even know? And, um, and uh, you, you've seen this. And then from a pure, uh, I don't know, the, I don't know really how to frame this, but you've seen this in the psychology world, uh, in, the, in the, the world of psychology in particular. I guess they've come up with the fact that a huge percentage of the, the studies that have come out in, the, in, in, in psychology have not been peer reviewed or repro- not, not, not just peer reviewed, but have not been reproducible. And there was something called the, yeah. the I can't remember what it's called. It was like something like a re- the producibil- reproducibility experiment or something like that. Where there and and. A lot of the, I guess, the editors of some of these big journals were, in one hand, sort of frustrated by it. But on the other hand, they didn't want to dig too far into it because it's like, wow, you know, we don't, in some sense, want to show that the emperor has no clothes, that all the psycholo- science and, and, and psychology is coming out and has really not been reproduced. So then where are we? Um, yeah, I mean, over the 30-plus the years that I've done, the, actually 40 now, um, I've had to become more and more comfortable with that type of uncertainty. And when I wrote Body by Science, what you'll see is I make an appeal for the protocol through discussions of basic science, through discussions of how metabolism through the cell proceeds and how aerobic metabolism is dependent upon substrate from the anaerobic metabolism and how that would argue that um, doing a high-intensity protocol would be the one that would, you know, seem to produce the most potential adaptation. And then in the bibliography say, oh, and by the way, here's some studies that support that notion or that verify that notion. Um, I, I don't claim and never would claim that science has proven that this protocol is the way to go or the best thing to do, period. Um, And I've become more and more comfortable with not requiring that kind of proof from science. Um, I'm very happy to have an input that seems logical, that goes into a black box, and have a desirable outcome on the other end of the black box. And I derive a lot of enjoyment of speculating and trying to figure out what's going on inside the black box. But at the end of the day, I'm very happy with if I put something in one side and the desirable outcome comes out the other, I am content with not 
completely understanding what's going on in there. And I think we have to kind of come that to that place with almost everything that we do. I mean, if I really were to analyze on a scientific basis what I do in the practice of emergency medicine, um, and and try to measure the success of my practice of that um, discipline based on just the objective scientific literature, I think I'd probably just have to hang it up and go home. Um, but I, there are still things that I do based on what I think is good, just basic science, not scientific literature. I put it in one end and on the other end, you know, someone's life is saved. I got to be okay with that. And that's kind of how this all plays out for me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, you know, and I don't mean to, uh, I'm not bringing this up to say criticize the science behind your book in particular. I'm just, I'm just curious as somebody who's been, you're, you're, you're looking at science to make decisions or make recommendations and you're a practicing physician. So these are things you have to think about a lot. And, yeah. you know, we read about a lot of this, even just as in the, in the popular, you know, literature about, you know, what's going on with science and science publication. And for instance, you know, a, a really good friend of mine was um, or is a vascular surgeon and he would talk about how, you know, you, you show up at a conference and some guy would say, well, you know, we had five patients and this is what happens. And then we're, and they wrote up a study on it. Right. And like right. that was then served as some sort of like, as if that was a valid study, like that sample size was meaningful or something. And, you know, any statistician would look at that and go, whoa, you know, you can't do that. But then, when the reality is that you just have a thousand people, you know, randomly selected to blah, 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 who have this problem with their vascular system and then had this exact procedure done and therefore could come out with it. They just said, look, we had five people. We did this. They had this kind of success rate, you know, whatever. I mean, as a doctor, I mean, how do you, how do you view that sort of stuff? I mean, in your world, I imagine you probably have to look at studies or anecdotal you know, evidence like that all the time and, and weigh that in what you're, with what you're doing. Yeah, and I got to admit, I mean, physicians in general, myself included, are not um, very scientifically sophisticated, and we're very easy to fool. And I, and you know, I see a lot of this go on in my medical practice, and a lot of it is driven um, by you know financial interests, financial interests that flow through big pharma and the FDA. And I mean, I see some utterly, completely ridiculous stuff and torturing of the data in order to reach conclusions that um, are, are simply not valid. By the same token, I see a lot of medicine that produces good outcomes that are done by sort of flying by the seat of your pants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think that... Um, science practice as rigorously as we'd like to see it practice is, um, is never going to be a source of innovation that you always are going to have to innovate first and see a potential desired outcome and then test it scientifically retrospectively to find out whether that really holds up or not. And that's where the frustration comes from. And I think that 
to function well in the world, whether it's exercise or medicine, you have to become comfortable with how the human mind works to get good results. And the way the human mind seems to work, in my opinion, is that it operates on heuristics, on broad thinking parameters that seem to work, and then you apply them and see what the outcome is. And then having accumulated enough outcomes, you can actually then test it scientifically. But to try to use the scientific method and scientific sampling to answer a question before it has any broad application, I think is very difficult, if not impossible to do. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, I, you may not be familiar with this, but it's like a, in, in machine learning, which is sort of a world that's sort of adjacent to the stuff that Justin and I do and we talk about on the show a lot, is there's this thing called, there's this sort of methodology or, I don't know, mathematical framework called Bayesian probabilities, Bayesian yeah. classifiers. And it's very similar. It's like basically you're looking at a series of past half outcomes and you come up with a probability distribution. And you're like, well, all things being equal or given the evidence that we have, this is 89% probable. That's about best you can do. You know, you, and then you just, it's like, that's essentially what we're doing. You know, we're just, we're yeah. And, and our minds do this, you know, even people that are not particularly intelligent, our minds seem to do this in a very effective manner. One thing that is borne out in simple decision-making in medicine, um, you can come up with all sorts of clinical decision rule based on this Bayesian approach and end up with a very simple clinical decision rule, whether that be, you know, auto ankle rules for whether you should get x-rays in people that have twisted their ankle um, or uh, NIH stroke score for deciding whether to give someone uh, thrombolytic therapy for a stroke. Um, what they find over and over again, a perk rule for deciding, you know, whether someone should undergo studies to find out if they have a blood clot on their lung. All these different clinical decision models, they find always they work really well, but they never work quite as well as just clinical gestalt. And mm -hmm. someone that does not have a rule or a checklist, but just is like, eh, I think this person is low risk, or I think this person's intermediate risk, and I'm going to do this study. They just this total gut feeling gestalt always seems to perform as well or slightly better than if you follow a formal decision tree that's been created through Bayesian testing. You know, I, I, I know we're getting way more philosophical than you probably anticipated, but <laughs> I, I don't care. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> I like this sort of stuff. Great. I, I mean, this stuff is fascinating to uh, to me, at least. I, well, hopefully, our listeners will like it. And we, we do talk about this stuff on the show quite a bit. So, um, actually, two two other things I wanted to follow up just on this line, and then maybe we can get back more to specifics the, the things in the book. But one is um, I can't remember. I don't think I think this is a topic I was saving for a discussion show. So I don't think we even talked about the show yet. But there was a um, there's a big study about uh, predicting the future, about the difficulty in terms of predicting like what's going to happen in the Middle East or what's going to happen in the EU with whatever, right? And it, essentially, there, there, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about this and, and the Financial Times, and they were both talking about how 
is most pundits and sort of experts are usually very bad at predicting what's going to happen. And the, and the consensus view was like, well, the, the world is than um, than we thought, and people are worse at predicting things than we thought. So that's just there's no hope. But then there came along this thing called the Good Judgment Project, and I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head who started it. And I think it was based out of a university, but I'm not sure. But what they did is they got a they got groups of people, teams of people to work together, and they would give them questions on say you know what's going to happen you know with the integrity of Iraq or what's going to happen with the you know whatever, you know, they have a bunch of sort of macroeconomic geopolitical things. And they would do a couple things to get them ready. One, they, they, they taught them how to eliminate cognitive biases, how to work together as a team, and how to use probabilities in terms of determining whether something was true or not, whether something was likely to happen or not. Now, it's not like this was going to happen or, you know, Assad was going to fall in Syria or not. It's just like, well, there's a 39% chance or whatever. And then they would rank... Or, you know, they would basically, they would have to make a prediction and then they would evaluate afterwards whether the prediction was true or not or where it came true or not. And then that sort of loop of constantly trying to make predictions and then being rated, well, we were wrong. Why were we wrong? Why did we miss this? And it turns out that the, the groups of the teams that work together that, you know, you know, went through this build, build training process in terms of how to be good at predicting did really well. But one of the things that they learned was that, Teams or people that use an, a specific logical framework were usually very bad at predicting the future. It was sort of the ad hoc, pulling together lots of different pieces of information, looking at it from different angles, and then basically, like you're saying, making kind of a gut opinion. Say, yeah, that's probably an 8% chance that's going to happen, which is sort of very similar to what you're talking about in terms of what a doctor might do. They say, well, I can look at it from this angle. I can look at it from that angle. I can take this information, but now I'm going to bring it all together, and basically I say, yeah, you know. Pretty unlikely, <laughs> right? You know, it's just sort of interesting. It's like the the logical framework, which you think from this sort of scientifically minded approach, you think that that would be the superior approach. But it turns out that I that maybe it's just that those the methods that we have in this current day and age are just not up to the task of dealing with the complexity of either the world's geopolitical situation or the human body's complexity. Yeah, I think that's true for both the body and the world. And I think because just one more variable introduced can change the trajectory so dramatically that prognostication and predicting is very compromised. I think you made an interesting statement about, um, you know, getting feedback and then having a loop of evaluating the feedback and adjusting as you go. I think for dealing well in an uncertain environment and trying to prognosticate and to operate within an uncertain environment. The real key is the loop. Right. Um, you have to seek feedback, see where you're at, orient, decide, act. Have you guys heard of um, Colonel John Boyd? Oh, that sounds familiar. I'm not sure. No. Um, he, he's a guy that invented the F-16. He's a fighter pilot. They called him 42nd Boyd. Oh, uh, I think I saw an interview with him, and he was compl- he was talking about why the F twenty two or F thirty five were complete disasters. There's yeah. a bunch of interviews that, that guy. Oh yeah, yeah, You're great. So he he invented this thing that he called the OODA loop, and it represents um, OODA stands for observe, mm-hmm. orient, decide, and act. 
And observe is just to be thrown into an uncertain environment and look at what's going on around you, and then you orient. But orient is something that's completely dependent upon your own mind. It's a part of how you were raised, the culture you were raised in, your education, your background, all that's going to determine how you orient to what you observe, but you don't have any choice. That's all you've got. And then you have to decide quickly and then act. But your act introduces a variable into the environment that changes the the trajectory of everything. So you have to observe again. But the key to success in it was to turn this cycle as quickly as possible. So if you're fighting against an opponent, you are turning your OODA loop faster than he is, and you're interjecting and influencing the chaos such that you gain a competitive advantage. And that competitive advantage can be against um, an opponent or just in terms of adjusting to the environment and predicting the future. So I think the real key when you discussed all that was not the particular tool that you used to predict to prognosticate, but the loop you use to do it and how quickly you're able to turn that loop and adjust to changing conditions. Yeah, I know that's interesting you point that out too, because, um, you know, there's this sort of, I don't know, recommendation in, in the world of startups, which is something I'd like to talk to you a little bit about because you essentially have your own startup in, in, in your, with your gym. Um, it's ultimate exercise. That's what it's, that's what it's yes, called. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, which is, you know, you, you want to increase your learning rate as, as as much as possible because that's your key competitive advantage in any market. The faster you learn, the the better that you're going to be able to compete because you you figure out what works, what doesn't work, and then you you push all your resources to point towards the things that are working. So, running lots of trying things, whether they're whether they would really qualify as scientific experiments, but you actually try. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. Which one worked better? Okay, great. We're going to do the, the second one because that worked better. And those companies that are very quick iterating and trying new things are the companies that tend to uh, succeed, which is essentially exactly what you're talking about, the OODA loop, which I'm going to have to definitely uh, read more about because that's fascinating. Um, yeah, the- it has a lot of applications. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm certainly not a startup guy in the sense of – you know, the, the computing world, Silicon Valley, and these people that make billions. I'm not that kind of guy. Um, I think the key to that being true is you have to have sufficient capital mm-hmm. because it's great to um, make mistakes and learn from them and then adjust and move on as quickly as possible. But in order for that to work, you have to have had enough of an initial success that you have enough capital that you can risk making the mistake. Right. Because if you, if you make a mistake that consumes all your capital, then you're just done. <laughs> and I don't think that failure in itself is necessarily a good thing. I think that's, it, you know, there's experience, you know, someone, Arthur Jones, the guy who invented Nautilus, was very fond of saying um, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, because you can be very, very experienced and have bad judgment. 
Yeah. Um, and an episode of bad judgment, irrespective of your experience, if you don't have enough capital to absorb that kind of mistake, um, it can tank your startup and it can tank it in a way where you never get a second chance. So that's true, but it's true contextually. I think you have to be either um, at least initially cautious enough or initially lucky enough to have scored a big score in terms of capital in order to make this whole take risk, make mistakes, and cycle through it quickly and build from that work. Um, as long as you can get over the initial hump of making a mistake and it not consuming all your capital, if you can do that, then it works. Yeah. But the graveyard is full of people that were entrepreneurial, gutsy, and willing to go out and be fearless and make mistakes, and then they just you know tanked and their dream was over. Exactly. You know, actually, there's, um, I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Peter Thiel and his, the book that he came out with, uh, Zero to One. Or do, do, you, do you know who he is? Yes, I do. And I, I've heard him speak. I, I, is his book available yet? I, I yeah, think it, it just it's came out. out now? Just okay. came out now. Yeah. yeah and the, he, the last he, time I heard him speak, it was, uh, it was you know, on pre-sale, but wasn't yet out. So I've not read it. Yeah, but he and essentially it's a it's a compilation of his the the, the notes of, from his class that he taught at Stanford like it was like a year ago or something. And um, but this one of the things he talked a lot about was this cult of failure, this feti- this fetishization. I guess is, I don't know if that's quite a word or not of uh, of failure. And he's like, look, you know, failure is actually really bad, you know, and because there's a million ways to fail. Just because you fail one time doesn't really in- increase your knowledge that much. Which is essentially what you're saying. It's but if someone's found a way to succeed, like that's usually a lot better information. Like I, you know, which I think anyone in, in real life, if they put themselves in a situation and, you know, where it's like, okay. And I, we actually, I use this exact analogy last week when you read uh, the author of traction. And which is like, if you're standing, if you're standing at the edge of say some like, you know, monster infested forest. So let's say we're some fantasy movie or something. And there's like one guy has made it through a lie and everyone else, as far as you know, has either died going through or come back missing an arm or a leg, you don't really want to talk to those guys who miss an arm or a leg. Like, they don't really know anything other than the fact that the one thing they tried didn't work. But the one guy who got through, you're like, I'm going with you next time, right? Because he, 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 he found something that succeeded. Like The success yeah. has given us much more information than the failure about the right out. Right yeah, I think it's very contextual. And I, and I somewhat agree and disagree with him. I don't think failure is always an undesirable thing either. Um, what I object against is the notion of just throwing dog shit at a screen door and see what lands on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that sometimes failure completely opens the door by making evident to you what will work. But had you not failed in what you thought was going to work, it would not have revealed to you what is going to work. I think that this concept of not being fearful of failure because of the learning process has to be tempered with, I have to do that, but I have to contingency plan and be prepared so that the act of doing that doesn't just tank me. That's the difference between, um, you know, being a, um, an entrepreneur and being a gambler. Right. 
And uh, I, I think that's just a critical distinction to make. It's not just whether failure is good or bad. It's the context of the failure and whether you have contingency planned for it appropriately. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like you could come up with the laws of startups, like, you know, the three laws of robotics that Isaac Asimov came up with. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with the, 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 I, was it the iRobot series or right. whatever. Yes. And he's like, the first law was like, no robot, robot should harm or allow a human to be harmed through action or inaction or whatever. And then there was a second, we you know it was like three laws, but each one law could not violate the, the law that was higher than that. So it's like rule number one in startups, which is a famous rule, which I always love to cite, which is don't die. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like that's the rule number one. Don't die. As long as you don't die, you're still in the game. Right. So running experiments are great, but if any of those experiments have the potential to, to kill the startup or put it in a situation where it's near death, like that's not an experiment you can afford to run, you know, like you could almost, anyway. Now th- th- this <laughs> interview was about uh, fitness, was it? Or Sorry, sorry, Doug, I didn't mean to pull you that's into fine, this. That's fine, but let, uh, let's bring it back to that. I think, you know, the concept that I try to put forward in the book kind of pays homage to that because we want to bring a severe stimulus to the body so you can make a physical adaptation but you don't want to die, okay? I mean, you can get in great shape using other modalities, but if you tear your rotator cuff or you herniate your L5 disc and, you know, throw your back out, you know, your fitness program is dead. Um, and there, one thing I think that has been confirmed by some of the scientific studies that have investigated what I think the basic science supports is that it does not have to take an inordinate time commitment. And from exercise in the view of a public health standpoint, the number one cause for people to fall out of an exercise program is the time commitment. And for someone that's in your audience, we're talking about people whose most valuable commodity is their time. And that's true either if they're a startup that's not made a penny yet, but they just don't have time to spare because you're in the process of trying to do this. But you'll be much better at doing it if you truly are in good physical condition. Or if you are a Peter Thiel or someone that has really made it, your value in terms of your hourly rate is enormous. So you don't want to piss your time away getting X amount of results out of your exercise training over the course of four hours when you really could have done it in minutes a week. And I think that's where the real value in this lies, combined with the fact that you're not going to kill yourself in the process. Right. So when you, when you talk about your, the, your program, it's really like you kind of optimize for a couple different things, right? It's like you're, you're, you have like, you're optimizing for what, how can I get the maximum results with a very small amount of time and a small, very small chance of injury. So you're kind of optimizing for three variables as opposed to like, you know, okay, time is free. I can, I have this guy, it doesn't work. All, all he wants to do is train for the Olympics. So I can do as much as I want, in which case, you might adjust your training platform, uh, your training program slightly, right? I mean, I, I, that's something we could get into. But um, whereas you're like, we have three, at least three things, at least as far as we've talked about, that are important. Time, injury prevention, and maximum uh, cardiovascular as well as aer- uh, anaerobic fitness. Right. Right. 
And is, that, is, that right, is that the right way to think about it? That, that's a very fair way to think about it, but I'd like to introduce another variable that really becomes important, and that is, you know, in general, how do you feel? What's your overall sense of wellness? Because I can tell you, I mean, more than anything, um, I was just sort of uh, an exercise and fitness nut. And if it turned out that it the best results were going to be achieved by working out four hours a day, six days a week, I would have done that. Um, and in the process of kind of just going through this interest in my life, um, I have done that. And I've done different variations of high-intensity exercise where I did too much volume or too much frequency. And it is entirely possible to show good results in terms of a physical adaptation, your physical appearance, uh, your work capacity. All of those things can improve immensely. But in the process of creating that, you can spend most of your time walking around feeling like hammered dog shit because you were overtrained. You can have positive physical adaptations and a physique that everyone admires and good physical capacity, but in general, be feeling well below your baseline of what you should be feeling like almost all the time. And that has an enormously negative impact on your quality of life. But it is possible if you modulate to a minimal effective dose to have all of those positive adaptations that you seek without having to feel like crap mm -hmm. for a significant portion of your life. And that's really the key is that you should feel well above baseline way, way more than you ever feel below baseline as a result of your physical training. And there's a lot of people going that are out there with really exceptional physical conditioning that just feel like crap all the time because of how they're going about it. Right, right. Well, let me, let's get into a couple things specifically about the program because I, I know we've been talking about all this other stuff and I'm sure some people just want to hear about the program. Oh, please shut up. <laughs> like somebody tell me what program are we talking about? So, um, you never knew this guy was such a geek. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you, ple I'm pleasantly surprised a few things I brought up. I wasn't sure you'd done it. No. And of course you know all about it. So it's, it's great. Um, so the first thing I want to ask is, you said 12 minutes a week was sort of that was sort of how, you know cherry picked by the uh, the publisher to give yeah. a good title. I mean, you know, for you, somebody who basically is familiar with the program, you go in. I mean, you know, start to finish, someone's out there with a stopwatch trying to time how quickly you can possibly get through it. I mean, is it like what 30 minutes? I mean, what, how long does it take you if you're gonna step in? By the time you step into the gym and you step out. Oh, well, our clients at uh, Ultimate Exercise, we book three appointments an hour. Okay, so, wow. you know, they walk in the door, they do their workout, they recover, they walk out, the next client comes in. So we can cycle three clients per hour. So you're talking 20 minutes door to door. Wow. And so that 20 minutes, you've got to be a little bit less because there's literally like, you know, you've got yeah, to get... The, the actual workout itself, most of our people, I would say it's between 8 and 15 minutes. Um, I ran the stopwatch on one of my recent workouts is 8 minutes, 40 seconds. Okay, so it's even faster. Okay. 
Yeah, it can be. Now, here's the deal is that that kind of efficiency is born out of, I mean, we, we have good equipment. It has very low friction. It has very good strength curves. The environment's optimized. It's 61 degrees, and there's no one in your way. It's just you in the facility with your trainer. So you're moving quickly from one machine to the next. Done appropriately, 12 minutes will seem like an eternity, and it's all you can stand. If someone will ask you, hey, you want to do one more movement? You'll be like, no way. Right, right. So if you're doing it right, that's all you should be able to stand because it entrains a degree of fatigue and metabolic work that is, when done properly, is really just mind-blowing. Now, if it's someone self-directing themselves at home with a set of free weights, um, you know, and you got to change the weights out and do the, you know, it's going to take them more like a half hour, 35 minutes to complete the workout, but they should feel pretty darn toasted by the end of it. And they're not going to want any more. They're not going to think, Oh, I better add on a little bit of this or that. If you're doing it right, if you're really training as hard as you should, you shouldn't be able to stand much more than that. Why once a week? Why only 12 minutes once a week? Well, that's just a, a generalization as well. And that kind of is very context dependent, both on the individual himself and the individual at a certain point in their training. Now, if we have someone that's, you know, of average build when they first start out, you're not going to bring a whole lot of metabolic punishment to your body when you're uh, a beginner. You're not doing that much mechanical work in a given span of time. So someone that's just starting out, they can recover from the workout they can bring to themselves in 48, 72 hours. So you can train twice a week and get away with that for, you know, maybe 12, 20 weeks. But once you reach a certain level of strength, you know, you start out doing 200 pounds on a leg press um, for eight reps and you've done 1,600 foot pounds of work roughly. By the time you've gotten up to where you're using 300, and you've gone up that much on each machine, the amount of mechanical workload that you're doing in that fixed amount of time is going up exponentially. And your body sees that. It sees that mechanical workload. And that gets harder and harder to recover from. So on average, once we have a client trained up to where they're really using good intensity, they may be recovered and ready for another workout by the fourth or fifth day. But they'll be even more ready for a workout by the seventh day. And they may not be decompensating where they're starting to decondition until about the 10th or 12th day. Um, Because what you got to keep in mind is what we're trying to stimulate is the synthesis of new tissue and the upregulation of a lot of different enzymes to support that. And that is... You know, creating new tissue de novo is a very metabolically expensive process, and it simply takes time. So the workout itself is a stimulus. It is a negative, threatful stimulus that's brought to the body. And then the body, having received that stimulus, makes an adaptation. But that adaptation takes time. So if we think of the workout like digging a hole in the ground, and our body's response is filling the hole back up plus a little bit more on top, if you come back to do the workout too soon, before you fill the hole back up, you just keep digging a deeper and deeper hole. So it's actually requisite 
for enough time to have transpired for the body to have made its full adaptation. And on average, we just found that seven days works well. Now, we have some clients down at our facility that have a very good recovery ability, even despite becoming more advanced, that can train twice a week. We have some people that, because of the recovery ability and other aspects of their life, you know, they have two small children, they work a rotating schedule, or they're a night shift worker, those people may come to work out every 12th day. Um, but what we use is we use the metrics of the workout card. If, if they are doing well, they will show improvement on a workout-by-workout workout basis. If they're very advanced, that improvement may be almost undetectable, but certainly in the intermediate stages, they're on a steep part of a curve where that's very easy to see. They'll improve on a workout-by-workout workout basis. If they're not fully recovered, we will see that during the workout. They will not perform as well as they had previously and will know that they need extra recovery. How much, how long does it take before somebody reaches that point where their gains become um, very small or almost unmeasurable? I mean, is it like, you're saying this is like three months or three years? How, how, you have even a ballpark for that or is it just an individual by individual basis? It is kind of an individual by individual basis and it kind of depends on a, a very, if you can imagine a combination lock with at least eight different numbers on it, you can imagine the variation that can occur. Mm -hmm. um, but some people reach their genetic potential in a matter of weeks. Six, 12 weeks, people go very, very steep and reach a very fast rate of muscle growth and strength, and then they become asymptotic very early. Other people take a very a much more gradual incline to that that occurs over the course of a year or 18 months. And really, that asymptotic part of the curve, a lot of that has to do with the mechanical limitations of the technology that we have currently. Mm -hmm. um, all of the, no matter how much you try to work on the friction that's in the equipment and the strength curve of the equipment, the fact that there's a sticking point when your joints in a given movement reach minimum moment arm and your shoulder and your elbow are at 90 degrees and your force output through the movement arm is minimal, that creates a sticking point when you're lifting and lowering the weights. And as you get stronger, if you think of that sticking point as like a speed bump in the road, as you get when you first start out, it's like you're pushing a Yugo over a speed bump. But by the time you become very, very strong, that speed bump becomes much more problematic. So when you're using 200 pounds on the leg press and you hit that little sticking point, getting over that hump is not so bad. But when you got 1,000 pounds on the leg press and you reach that mechanical sticking point, then you're going to find you're reaching failure, inability to continue to move the weight, simply because of the mechanical limitations of the equipment and not really because of anything related to your strength and your recovery at any given point in time. So the technology is somewhat limiting for us to be able to continue to demonstrate on paper those continued improvements. At that point, you really have to shift into an internalized intrinsic process where at a given load, you are adjusting your behavior in such a way 
that you're making the movement more and more difficult even though you're not able to progress the weight because of these limitations. And that's where the art of all this starts to take effect is once you've been doing it for a year or 18 months longer and you get asymptotic, then you really have to get the bang for the buck out of adjusting your behavior while you're working out so that you bring the most intensity possible with the given modality you have. Right. Now, would it be the kind of thing that, like, say, for instance, on the leg press, that you you hit, you go asymptotic on the leg press, you've got up to, you know, you've got from two to 300 or 350 pounds or something, then at that point, you could actually do something like full squats, you know, um, with barbells, you know, you really, I mean, that's a whole different thing. And I understand it's not part of the, your program specifically or anything, but I'm just saying like, you know, I mean, let, let's say we have a case that where you have, okay, you have this kid, he's 17, 18 years old. He's playing football at the local high school. He's looking to play division one football. His dad brings him in and says, okay, like he's going to have to add reduce his vertical, he's going to add five inches to his vertical jump over the next six months. He needs to be able to add 15 pounds of muscle and needs to reduce his 40-yard dash. We need to yep. increase his force output on his posterior chain and that kind of stuff. And, you know, it would be the kind of thing that you'd say, okay, well, we can probably push him to he's asymptotic for three to five months, but then after that, you might go to a more traditional, you know, and more time-consuming and more dangerous thing, uh, lifting like squats and deadlifts. I mean, what would be your perspective on that? Well, you can do that. And that's, you know, and sometimes just introducing a, a change in equipment or protocol can be enough to kind of coax out some additional adaptation. But the thing you have to be careful of is um, sometimes changing modalities just allows you to continue to show progress on paper okay. because now you're going through a new motor learning curve and you may not necessarily be strengthening. And the converse of that is also true. By the time you get asymptotic on the leg press, it's not because your body's not continuing to get stronger and improve necessarily. It's just because the mechanical limitations of that movement and its sticking point is not going to allow you to progress the weight much beyond where you're at. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you can't um, control your behavior and form so that you become even stricter. And what you may see then is that as you get better and better at bringing the stimulus to your body, your performance on paper may actually look worse because your time under load before you reach failure may actually get shorter. But at this point, it's getting shorter because you're getting more and more skilled at not hiding from the effort, at not doing anything to cheat. Um, so what you're doing is you're producing a rate of fatigue in an even shorter amount of time. And even though on paper that doesn't look like progression, you actually are improving. Um, and that's very frustrating for people because we tend to externalize. We tend to try to think of improvement in this realm as making a larger weight go up and down for a longer amount of time. When in fact, we may achieve that on paper by sandbagging in the easy part of the range of motion and hurrying through the hard part of range of motion in order to show a better performance on paper when what we've actually done by doing that is delivered an inferior, an inferior stimulus for improvement to our body that makes any sense to you. Right, right. 
So would would you then say that if you were you know presented with someone, let's again, at least like there's some athlete who's training for the Olympics. Let's say they're gonna be they're an Olympic uh, shot putter. You know, it's all about explosiveness. I mean, would you say that you could achieve the same kind of doing this type of workout for their, their power output, their strength output, um, as opposed to doing something like squats and deadlifts um, that a shot putter would likely use to continue to build strength? Yes, um, you can. And there are people that have used this kind of protocol for given power sports. There are people that use this protocol as the basis of strengthening for being a competitive power lifter. Um, the thing you got to get separated in your head is the physical conditioning from the skill conditioning. You can use the kind of protocol that I'm advocating to produce the physical conditioning for as much strengthening as possible, but you have to understand that that has to be dovetailed with the very specific skill conditioning of that sport, whether it's shot putting or being a football lineman or professional BMX racer that's a very explosive sport. You have to take the physical conditioning done in a way that in no way tries to mimic the sport or do anything like that. It's just done purely for strengthening. But then you take that strength that you've built and learn how to apply it to that specific skill by rehearsing that skill. But you're rehearsing that skill in a non-fatiguing manner and in a way to improve performance by enhancing the skill, not by doing the skill in a way that's fatiguing to try to build conditioning. You're separating the two um, the two modalities entirely. Right, right. Now, the other thing is, uh, I'm curious about is, you know, in, t- in terms of strength training or just weightlifting, there's usually there's a big um, separation between uh, what's considered strength training and what's considered sort of bodybuilding. And so the strength training is like the two to six repetitions, which is known as, I think, I think the term is myofibrillated hypertrophy. Um, yeah. and yeah. that's, that's for, that's for really, that's increasing. I think of the muscle fibers and that's what you're doing to becoming very, very strong. So you might see like decathletes or something, you know, would be a good example of guys who, who they have to, still have to run the 1500 meters. So they still got to run distance. They can't be huge, but they need to be really strong or, or sprinters, Olympic sprinters, incredibly strong, but they're not that big compared to how strong they are versus, um, you know, bodybuilding, which is like the more eight to 12 range. And it's, I think it's called sarcoplasmic, um, Hypertrophy, which is used to, to I, I think, increase the, I think what's something like the glycogen stores or something, increases, uh, you get additional muscle fibers or something like that. Um, and yeah, I think so that's, you, I you, think you, that now, is mostly fantasy. Okay, so you don't think that's real? That's not actual science? Yeah, I think what that is is reverse engineering um, a process of selection bias. Okay. Um, if, like I've talked about in the book, if you go to a collegiate swim meet and you sit throughout the entire day and you watch the preliminary heats, you'll see all sorts of different body types up there on the starting platform. By the semifinals, people are starting to look a lot more similar. Mm-hmm. And by the finals, it looks like you have a row of clones on the starting line. Mm-hmm. Because the selective pressure of competition has selected out for the body type that is most well adapted to do well at that sport. The same is true for people that are bodybuilders uh, versus power athletes. You can take a power lifter and put him on a bodybuilding program, and he's still going to look like he did as a power lifter. 
and he's still going to perform better as a powerlifter than he would as a competitive bodybuilder and vice versa. Mm-hmm. We tend to think that because bodybuilders have a preference for a certain style of training, that it's that style that produced their body, when instead it was their body that selected that style. And right. I think that if we really delved into it, that's what we'd find. I guess that'd be an interesting study because you could set people up and you could have them perform for you know three months or six months certain types of exercises and then have them switch to something else and vice versa. You know, to right. see how their bodies adapt. Say, you know, do you get right. bigger? And I think like, the whole concept of high reps, low reps, myofibrillar versus sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is just a reverse engineering of Mikey likes it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, a couple of things I want to ask you about uh, as well, which is um, one, you mentioned that, it, that you're, that you keep your facility at 61 degrees. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, yes. And, you know, uh, well, for one, um, I think it was like the, what's that thing? Oh, the Bikram yoga. Is that the one, the yoga they yeah. do? Then that really, it's really hot and they, you know, That's claim one, it's, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the, the reasoning is. I guess it keeps your body, your, your muscles are really, um, really, uh, flexible and loose or something like that. So what, you know, why does the, the actual temperature matter that much? I mean, imagine if it gets too cold, then your muscles are cold. You can make pull a muscle. If it's too hot. You're just uncomfortable, I guess. And you're, you know, yeah, the, the whole idea of warming up and everything that that's important to some degree for a muscle that's going to be subjective to severe and sudden forces. But one of the most rate limiting things for muscle performance is the fact that a large amount of heat is generated by the act of doing hard muscular work. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some of that is just purely friction-based by, you know, the sliding filaments, but a lot of it's just metabolic. And that heat accumulates very quickly, and it needs to be dissipated because all of the enzymatic processes of muscular contraction um, are pH and temperature dependent. All enzymes have an activation threshold that's optimized by a particular pH and or temperature. And you go outside that window and everything falls apart. Um, and what was found just serendipitously was that if you're able to dissipate the heat of intense muscular activity through conduction and convection, you can continue to perform and fatigue that muscle more deeply for a much, much more long and meaningful period of time than if you don't. Once you have to resort to an evaporative heat loss mechanism, it's already too late. You're going to fail prematurely, and you're not going to have fatigued the muscle as deeply as you otherwise could have. Um, and that was discovered accidentally during some research projects when an air conditioner that was about to go out went on the fritz and Everything was very, very cold, and everyone, all the training subjects' performance just went off off the charts. Um, so they started experimenting with those colder temperatures and found that there was great performance improvement. Now you got people at DARPA looking at the you know these hand cooling mechanisms for soldiers that are operating in in desert environments as a means of improving their physical performance. Um, so temperature regulation is very important to us. For a few things, one is improving the time efficiency for our clients, but mostly it's to be able to make certain that when a person reaches muscular failure in our place, it's because they've been driven to as deep a level of fatigue as possible, not because the buildup of heat has caused them to fail prematurely. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, talk, if you could talk a little bit about how all this plays into fat loss. So, um, you know, your, your, your program doesn't involve any sort of cardio. And I know there's a lot, there's been a lot of criticism lately on cardio, whether that's helpful or just a waste of time. And, and, uh, you know, that you can, by doing short term, high intensity training, um, whether it's cardio or non-cardio that you, you kind of get your body in this sort of, um, state where it continues to burn fat for the next something like 48 hours or, or whatever. I mean, what, what's, how, how does that all fit in with, with your program and your thinking? Yeah, I think in terms of body fat and body composition that we're still kind of stuck in the paradigm of thinking in terms of, you know, a bomb calorimeter and calories in and calories out. And that does matter, but in a conditional sort of way. Um, there's a lot more going on than simply um, calorie accounting. Um, and the recent studies, that uh, research that is out on myokines, if you just go to a PubMed and just plug in the search term myokines, it'll open a treasure trove of really interesting stuff. And um, if you're familiar with Arthur Devaney, he is one of the kind of the fathers of the whole paleolithic diet movement but he he said something probably as much as a decade back he said that the tissues your body exist in competition with each other we're not this big homeostatic kumbaya organism that that works for the benefit of you as a person that uh, your dna expression in the different tissues of your body is actually competing with each other and there are different hormones and chemical signals released by different tissues to influence that process. And muscles, muscle is starting to be discovered as a very active endocrine organ. And it secretes its own cytokines, which have been termed myokines, that help tip the balance of energy partitioning towards it. Um, So if you intake energy these chemical and hormonal signals will determine how that energy is partitioned. And someone that's allowed themselves to become metabolically broken, to accumulate too much body fat, their body fat through the secretion of cytokines now has the competitive advantage such that someone that's become metabolically broken and obese can literally feel like just the very air that they breathe gets turned into body fat. Mm -hmm. But someone that's training appropriately is, as you build up skeletal muscle and you release more of these myokines, interleukin-8, interleukin-15, they send chemical signals that directly compete with body fat so that nutrients get partitioned more towards lean tissue than towards body fat. So it is a combination of calorie accounting, which ultimately does matter, but it's done in the context of biological signaling that gives one the competitive advantage over the other. So it is either insurmountably hard to lose body fat or relatively easy and ultimately almost effortless in the right environment of appropriate signaling. And that's where high-intensity training that really puts an emphasis on skeletal muscle adaptations gives you the advantage in fat loss. So so having... So, so that's, so, but okay. So is it the having a more muscle makes it easier to burn fat 
is it only that or is it the fact that you're having your muscles are going through in an adaptive phase of rebuilding that that process of being in that state of rebuilding is um, the, the signals that it sends off makes fat burning easier or it burns fat or, or what exactly? Yeah, it's both of those and more. Um, and it's a positive feedback loop. The more muscle tissue you have, the more of these myokines you're going to secrete, which gives the partitioning advantage to skeletal muscle over body fat. Also, your skeletal muscle is the largest glucose reservoir in your body. And the surface of your skeletal muscle has the greatest number of insulin receptors in your body. So to the extent that you are able to empty stored glucose, glycogen, out of your muscles through aggressive training, you create a need for glucose to be moved back into the cell, which upregulates insulin receptors on the surface of the muscle, thus improving your insulin sensitivity. That therefore drops your circulating insulin, which therefore decreases your propensity for storing body fat under insulin signaling, and also decreases the incidence and probability of de novo lipogenesis, of taking carbohydrate and turning it into circulating fat that can then be stored. So there are all sorts of hormonal metabolic cascades that are going on that are going to either favor storage of energy as body fat as a primary metabolic pathway versus utilization of energy within active skeletal muscle tissue and doing a type of exercise that orients itself towards stimulating and growing muscle is going to do all of those things to give the competitive advantage toward um, lean tissue over body fat. Okay. Now, one thing you, you'll see, I'm okay. Again, I'm going to throw a heuristic out there and I'd like to see how this plays into your, your thinking from a scientific basis is that, now, if you get people who are really overweight and they have 60, 70, 80, 100 pounds of fat on them, they do anything for a week or two. They, you could say, oh, I dropped, they dropped five pounds or 10 pounds. You know, you watch the show, The Biggest Loser, and people, yeah, the week. But you take someone who's fit, and there's just no way that's going to happen. They hit the gym four hours a day, you know, doing whatever. I mean, doing the most intense stuff, and they're not going to lose 12 pounds. They're going to lose five right. pounds. Um, you know, it gets asymptotically harder the fitter you get, the less fat you have on the body, the, like the harder the more your body holds onto it and decides to use other things in your body for energy, whether it's breaking down muscle or whatever. So that, you know, when you're really, you're, you're really fit, that first few weeks are really great. Cause like, boom, I'm losing, you know, two, three pounds. And then it just starts getting slower and slower and slog. It's like the cement starts to dry or whatever. I mean, how does that, how does that fit in? I mean, how does that work? Well, for one, um, you know, you got to question whether that, that weight loss in these biggest loser type morbidly obese people is truly fat loss, mm-hmm. um, which it isn't. A lot of it is just the act of exercising for the first time ever gets them to mobilize some glycogen. And for every molecule of glucose you mobilize, it binds four molecules of water. So, you know, you lose one pound of, um, you know, stored sugar, you're going to lose four pounds of water along with it. Um, so, th- I mean, there's a lot going on there that muddies the water as to what that weight loss actually means. But to answer your question, for someone that's closer to their goal of what they want their body fat to be, 
um, it is much harder to lose those last few pounds than it is early in the game. And the reason is, is that stored body fat has evolutionary survival value. And what percentage of body fat we find cosmetically desirable may not necessarily jive with the degree of body fat that is, from an evolutionary survival standpoint, optimal. Um, but having said that, there is a diminishing marginal utility for stored body fat. And this is where, for lack of a better term, aerobics or low intensity exercise comes in. And it's not because you're burning fat or you continue to burning, burn fat after you stop with lower intensity exercise. It's that you're sending a signal to your body. I think the best exercise paradox that I could give people is that it's good to be very, very active at a low level of intensity almost all the time. Mm. And then very intermittently have very high intensity exercise that's focused on muscle. But what that lower level activity gets you in terms of body composition is not burning the calories, but sending a biological signal that is part of this black box that we don't understand yet. But I am convinced that what you're doing is you're sending a biological signal that says, the diminishing marginal utility of carrying this extra body fat um, is getting smaller because if you're that active, the metabolic cost of carrying around the extra weight is not worth the caloric value of the stored energy because you're going to burn more energy carrying what's stored than you could make use of. Otherwise, if you suddenly got in a starvation situation, I guess the way of putting it is if you're a gypsy, you travel light because you don't want to lug all this crap around with you. The metabolic cost of lugging all this crap around with you gets ratcheted down if you're more active. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So what about your own fitness? I mean, have you, um, now I'm assuming you follow the, your own program. I mean, what, what level have you sort of reached personally from following this and how has it affected you? I mean, just from a numbers, right? Your body fat percentage and relative strength and all, and bo- you know, bone density. Have you ever done any analysis of uh, of that kind of thing? I've I've not done. Well, I actually have had a um, DEXA scan done. Mm-hmm. Um, that someone I, I went to see uh, a fellow that uh, runs a place in San Antonio. He's a physician, um, and he put me through a DEXA scan. But I I know my bone mineral density was good, but I don't know actual numbers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 52 years old. I'm five foot nine. I weigh 174 pounds. Um, I probably live at a body fat percentage that fluctuates between nine and 13 percent, and is wow. maybe 11 percent on most days. Um, resting heart rate when I wake up in the morning, probably 48, 50. Um, blood pressure is in the 90s over 60s. So, um, so you're extremely the- all of the health parameters that someone would use to measure that kind of thing, I think, are probably pretty good. But I make it a deliberate part of my life not to try to measure those things and keep track of those things. I rather focus on doing all the things that I think are right and then kind of going on how I feel. Right, right. Which is interesting from a, a you know a doctor's perspective. I mean, I would think that you'd almost be like 
you'd want to go off the numbers as opposed to how you feel. I mean, what, what, why is that? Why would you? Well, that probably would have been true in my earlier career as a physician. Um, but then you start to realize that um, all this number crunching and um, trying to, to quantify these health parameters, um, I think, is one, a bit neurotic, and two, somewhat meaningless. Um, because these, these numbers that we take in isolation um, – may not necessarily mean anything health-wise in the, in the total context. And number two, um, I kind of lost my train of thought with that. But um, the Well, I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be, I mean, <clears throat> you know, like the, the one concern I would have, I mean, I would just, is that if you're, someone was, I mean, like yourself, you say, look, I'm fit, I have, you know, I don't, I'm not carrying a lot of body fat, I exercise. So what the numbers say, you know, they fluctuate. It might not be a big deal. But let's say, you know, you talk to somebody who's obese. You know, a lot of people are obese and they say they feel great. They feel fine. But the reality is they actually are sick, are on the verge of being very sick. But, you know, they've just adapted in terms of mentally even that they've just gotten used to their certain state. They don't realize that they actually do feel bad or maybe they do feel fine, but they're on the verge of, type 2 diabetes or, you know, some other series of, of weight-related problems. I mean, yeah. you, you, would you say that, you know, that what your, your perspective is just for yourself because you know you're doing all the right things that you need to do from an exercise? Yeah, diet? I guess from my perspective for myself, I could measure and try to track some of these things. The variation in those things would probably have more to do with just randomness, variation within the test itself, its own degree of... Uh, precision in terms of reproducibility of results that's highly variable mm -hmm. um, and it may get me neurotically focused on something for no good reason for someone that's in a disease state that's in denial of that state you can certainly draw some things and show them some numbers that are like hey you're headed for trouble here um, right. you know your hemoglobin a1c is high your you know your your morning serum insulin levels are high you know, your C-reactive protein's high. You got all sorts of markers of inflammation. Um, your glucose tolerance is poor. You know, you are heading for, you know, a metabolic meltdown, and this isn't good. That would be a value, I think. For someone yeah. that is trying to use those sort of data points to optimize a level of fitness that's already good, I think you're going to... Um, you're going to confuse life with therapy and it's going to go down this neurotic vortex that's counterproductive. Yeah, you get this sort of upset. You get obsessed with things that are not really. Yeah, you, you, you know, and, and in particular, your audience would be very, the type of personality that's very prone to geek out. And then, you know, one number just for completely random reasons get off a little bit and then kind of go down this vortex of trying to fix it well, when there's really I, nothing I, wrong. Well, I know that, you know, just on, a, on the very sort of, uh, you know, basic level, like, you know, I've been, you know, on a regimen since the beginning of the summer, and now I've lost about 20 pounds or whatever. And, uh, and but one of the things that I've, you know, get obsessive about is just weighing myself, which I know has a lot of variability, but I just kind of get addicted to like checking in even a couple of times a day, because, you know, when you, when you follow a very specific diet and a very specific workout routine, you start to be able to predict 
what's mm-hmm. going to happen. Even though you know, even though I know there's ran, there's variability. There's going to be a two, three pound just bounce around from I, I don't know water randomness, whatever. And um, but again, it, it it throws you off. Like I, I'll, I'll I I'll get myself kind of psychologically down because I didn't I didn't see that drop that I expected that one and a half pound drop or, or something. And right. it does become counterproductive because you just become obsessed with something that's a rant, you know. But, but it can work also if just, you know, the constant knowledge that you are trying to objectively measure something um, can drive your behavior in such a way just to keep you on track. Um, now, that may ruin certain hours of your day when the number isn't what you wanted it to be. But if in the long term, that's something that keeps you on track in this program, you know, that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, um, no, you're absolutely right. I've heard we talk a lot about that on the show about being goal oriented. So when I, when, I'm not, when, when I train, when I work out or what I, and I'm not goal oriented, I make no progress. It's like the reason that I've been able to lose 20 pounds and, and, and everything, it's, 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 I think largely to do with the fact that I'm, you know, not not just following a diet and a training program, but that I am measuring myself. Like I am going to hit right. that number a week, right? So you know, you're like, you know, it, it keeps you on track that you don't cheat on your diet or you don't like skip a workout or, or you know whatever. But yeah, I I think that's a good counterpoint. Yeah, I mean, measurement for really trying to control a complex biological process by using a parameter that is just a single element in that complex biologic process is a prescription for just sort of polishing the handrail on the Titanic potentially. But when you talk about something like what you're talking about, that's a pretty gross measure that is used as both the carrot and the stick to keep you on track with what you're trying to do. And I think that is potentially useful. I mean, if it works towards keeping you on track with what you're trying to accomplish, I think that's great. Right, right. Okay, so I have, um, I have actually have a few more questions. I know we're running really long, so if you yeah. don't want to get long answers to these, that's fine. Um, that's fine. But I, I, I definitely need to ask about these. The first is about um, cardio. So, do you not do any additional cardio, or do your gym members not do any other cardio, or is it something that is sort of, uh, you know, no, hey, no, if you want to go do it or what? I mean, how do you? That's highly variable. I mean, in the end, what I really want to emphasize to people is that your focus needs to be primarily on training the musculature in an intense fashion. And by and large, what everyone thinks of as cardio will be taken care of in the process. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that there really isn't such a thing as cardio. Um, What cardio came to mean was steady state exercise of a low intensity that favored the aerobic metabolic pathway, at least in terms of um, oxygen uptake. And the reason that happened was sort of a, when your only tool's a hammer, the whole world is a nail kind of approach to research and exercise physiology that began all the way back in the 60s and 70s, because really the only tool that they had to measure exercise performance was VO2 max or oxygen uptake. So all improvements that could be demonstrated in exercise were demonstrated through that modality. And that caused the whole aerobics movement to, to take hold. And, you know, what was supposed to save America's heart really just ended up ruining its knees. Um, <laughs> but 
what has happened is that this concept of low-intensity exercise that somehow thought it could isolate the aerobic subsegment of metabolism and that somehow that subsegment of metabolism was directly connected to the cardiovascular system. Somehow aerobic metabolism that occurred in the mitochondria became synonymous with that type of exercise that directly connected to the cardiovascular system, such that doing steady-state aerobic exercise now is referred to as cardio. Right. And that is all just um, a catchphrase that developed over a whole cascade of faulty premises. Okay. Um, so you can get that sort of metabolic conditioning by doing high-intensity exercise and not having to do any traditional aerobics. But that doesn't mean that you can go work out 12 minutes once a week and you're good to go to show up at the Boston Marathon and compete in it because that's a very specific metabolic adaptation. And if you want those sort of specific metabolic adaptations, you're going to have to train for them. Um, so we have clients that are competitive road cyclists, that are 10K runners, marathon runners, half marathon runners, ultra marathon runners. All these people are represented, you know, over time in, in the clientele that we've had. Um, so that doesn't mean that I advocate against it or say that it's a bad thing. Um, it's just that it's not, quote, cardio. It's a very specific metabolic adaptation that exists on a broad Continuum. Okay, but well, the cardiac and vascular system supports the metabolic functioning of the entire cell, not right. just the mitochondria. So when you're doing high intensity strength training, you are benefiting your cardiovascular system in a way that is very profound. And that's never been believed before. And it's probably affecting your cardiovascular system in a way that is more profound than if you were just. Um, doing nothing but steady state aerobics. Okay. Well, let, let's say that, you know, you want, you're trying to, you know, you want to drop 30, 40 pounds over a period of, you know, three to six months or something really, you know, and you're in, you know, you, you do the, you do your lifting program. Would you suggest, well, like, you know, this person one to two pounds a week, which I think is sort of a recommended safe maximum for most people. Um, would you tell them, don't worry about doing anything else other than just living an active life? Or would you say, you know, go ride your bike or jog or do the elliptical or whatever, 30 minutes, twice or three times a week. I mean, would you say even do that? Or is it even just, is it, is it, is it of no, is it an inconsequential yeah, with, benefit or with our clients, whatever? what we find is that as we strengthen people and their musculature becomes stronger, that seems to activate what we call the active genotype. Okay. And when that happens, their spontaneous activity level rises. They get a lot of what's called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that can be thumping your leg when you're sitting in a chair or just being up and about more, being too impatient to wait for the elevator. All those sort of things escalate as soon as you start to strengthen muscle. So what I tell my clients that are trying to lose body fat is um, – Follow how you feel because as you get stronger, you're going to become very energetic and you're going to have an urge to be more active. And when that happens, let that lead you and just go ahead and do whatever you want to do. 
what I don't do is I don't prescriptively say, oh, yes, go do the elliptical this many minutes, this many times a week in addition to this. What we find is that people, as they get their muscular conditioning, they become extremely, um, they have an extreme urge to become more active. They take up sports that they left behind years ago. Um, they, you know, decide, oh, I do want to go start trying to run a 10K or whatever. But whatever that increased activity level is and however it arises spontaneously, we allow that to happen. But we don't tell them to do it prescriptively and we don't encourage them to refrain from extra activity that occurs as a spontaneous urge, if that makes any sense. I find that when you, when you get the musculature lit up, that activity levels spontaneously rise and you need to let that happen organically. It's like a gateway drug into fitness. Yes. Now, what about diet? You know, you hear a lot of people in the fitness industry will say it's mostly diet, especially getting um, not stronger, but, uh, get, you know, body fat, like getting fit um, generally. I mean, fit yeah. in terms of, you know, not, not carrying around a bunch of excess body fat. But it's somewhere between, I don't know, depending on who you talk to, 75 and 90% or 95% that, you know, you can run around, you know, like you can't out-train a bad diet and all that kind of stuff. And that if you eat correctly, right. and all, eating correctly, of course, is a huge variation. I mean, you have sort of um, the paleo, and then you have things that are like, um, uh, you know, much more, I don't know, intricate. And then you have things like vegan where you only eat, you know, vegetables and stuff like that. I mean, what, what's your, uh, where do you fall on the, on the diet scale in terms of what you think works and how important it is overall? Uh, I think it's very important. I'm one of those guys that says you can't eat your way. I mean, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. I think that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always liked the paleo paradigm as a heuristic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the real emphasis there is to be eating real food. Um, problem is, is this become an enormously popular subculture? And as mm -hmm. such, it's developed its different factions to where, you know, you have paleo people that will fight amongst each other like Shiites and Sunnis or Palestinians and Israelis. Mm -hmm. Um and it's, it's insane. Um, mm -hmm. So I do like to follow the simplest of heuristics for myself and for clients or anyone that asks me for advice. And the heuristic is this, is that the best nutrition is a straight line between you and the sun. Mm -hmm. And that can be as simple as being out in the sun and converting vitamin D in your skin. Or the sun acting on phytoplankton that's eaten by fish and up the food chain or on plants that you either eat directly or you eat animals that ate the plants. But that chain, that food chain that exists between the sun and you should be as direct and straight a line as possible. When you deviate off that chain by multi-ingredient, you know, processing and all the things that make up the modern Western diet, that's where things can kind of start to fall apart and disrupt the hormonal signaling that allows you to auto-regulate towards an ideal body composition. You know, when you start getting larger and large amounts of, you know, industrial seed oils, omega-6 fatty acids, you know, different, you know, chemical disruptors and lectins, 
is those things get concentrated by the food manufacturing process. And those sort of manufactured foodstuffs make up a larger and larger percentage of your diet. That's when things go to crap. And where things become easy is when you stick as close to that straight line as possible. And that's how I try to give people the biggest, grossest heuristic. And then realize that we are omnivores. So we can vacillate back. And you, you can be a fruitarian, and then you can be a vegan, and then you can be a paleo guy all in the same year, and it will all work out as long as you stay on that straight line. Um, but I think what the body will not like is regimentation and chronicity. So if you are going to be a chronic forever, forever vegan with these very strict food limitations, or if you're going to be a chronic uh, low-carb keto-adapted paleo guy and never very off of that, um, I think that is, is counter to the whole concept of an evolutionary paradigm for what we should be eating because um, that, that sort of unpredictability and variability in our environment is what dictated that we became omnivores and becoming, becoming omnivores is what gave us a competitive advantage. Right. Now, what about, so in addition to sort of like getting the right kind of foods in your body, like you're talking about seeing a direct line with the sun, there's, there's also the thing, the idea of like there's certain things in your body that are putting in your body that are effectively toxic or maybe low grade toxic. And, and the one I'm thinking of mostly is sugar. I mean, I guess, you know, there's always been a lot of, questions around, you know, how much simple carbohydrates can, can cause you to put on fat and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But then even, I guess, sugar has really come into the crosshairs as being like a real culprit. Um, you know, I, I know the nutritionist that I've been talking to who's sort of been overseeing my, you know, weight loss and fitness regimen is, you know, she's just like, no more 40 grams sugar a day. That's your limit. That's it. You know? And yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to pick apart and say what's worked, what's not, because I've been following a diet you know, max sugar, max calories, target protein, plus I've been working out six days a week. So it's really be hard to pull apart and say this worked or this didn't, you know. In the yeah. end, I guess I don't really care as long as I get fit. You know, it's like I'm not trying to answer larger scientific questions. I'm just trying to get my body to where I want it to be. So right. I don't really know. I can say I think this is what's working. And my nutritionist certainly thinks that this is what's the reason. But what are your thoughts on the on sugar and simple carbs or what's what's where's the real Who's, who, who's the bad guy or what, what do we need to be working on? Yeah, I think the real answer to that question always has to be the dose makes the poison. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, it's hard for people to imagine how bad a significant segment of the population's health is. And it starts, you know, I mean, when I'm in the ER and I see – um, an 18-month-old child that weighs 48 or 50 pounds. And I have a big, long discussion with the mother about, you know, this child, you need to, the child can have milk or water, but nothing else, no juices, blah, blah, blah. You know, the whole talk. And you come back, and these kids literally live on a diet of Mountain Dew and Skittles. Right. So, you know, there is so much in our diet that is so bad through processing that people that are not sophisticated 
are consuming as the bulk of their diet and it completely breaks them. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if you tomorrow decide at Starbucks that, you know, I want to put some of that sugar in my coffee that, you know, or if you have some toast the next morning that, you know, you're not going to be on the liver transplant list because you did that. I mean, sometimes we're like, you know, our, our demonization of this can't go that far off the rails or we're just going to lose credibility with ourselves, but it is bad stuff, but it's particularly bad in the context of how it's consumed in our environment and really, you know, how sick the general populace is from eating all this um, refined carbohydrate crap probably has a lot more to do with the type of gasoline that we're mandated to put in our car than anything. Right. Because, you know, the ethanol subsidies that create all these economic signal distortions in agriculture that results in this huge surplus of grain that gets processed into all this franken food that, you know, your welfare class people are eating and turning into, you know, metabolic train wrecks um, is just this bizarre distortion of, you know, turning a huge segment of the populace into human grain disposal mechanisms. But having said all that rant, you know, it doesn't mean a reasonable person should be totally abstinent of any sugar because they're just going to turn into a metabolic train wreck if they put a tablespoon in their coffee, you know? Yeah. One thing that I've been doing, um, which I don't know, seems to work again. Uh, but who knows? It's a buddy of mine who lost like 90 pounds following more or less the Tim Ferriss's four hour body um, uh-huh. plan. And that's pretty much a paleo diet. Um, yeah. I can't, it's like paleo with beans or without beans. I lose track, but something like that. And, um, and so I, you know, I went to the nutrition, nutritionist and she, like I said, said, all right, your max calories is like your basal metabolic rate plus, I don't know what it was like four or 500 calories. And then, target protein, 200 grams and 40 grams max sugar. Like that was the thing. But the one thing I did after kind of, I felt like I started to plateau after a couple of months mm-hmm. is I started doing the Sunday cheat day, which was what Tim Ferriss recommends. Right. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to give that a shot. It was scary because I was like, oh no, I don't want to get like, put on like five pounds and go back right. weeks of work. Like that's going to really be depressing. But I gave it a shot and, and you know, my buddy who read the book was telling me, he's like, dude, just eat whatever you want. He's like, pancakes, just do it. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. And yeah. sure enough, I mean, like I went to town and, you know, and it was great psychologically because it's just like, it was like a big, like, whew, like, oh, I can actually eat, you know, right. rice krispies and donuts and whatever. And it's almost kind of fun because, you know, you kind of go, you're like, go to town. You almost go overboard where your point where my wife is looking at me like, really? You really going to yeah, eat? And, I, and I think that works too, because it does introduce some metabolic flexibility back into the system. Yeah. Um, I think doing something with chronicity creates a, a steady state in terms of your nutrition, nutritional status. And I think the application of that concept is very context dependent. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you are someone that's, you know, been eating Captain Crunch Skittles and Coke your whole life, Mm -hmm. um, and you've become metabolically broken with a metabolic syndrome and pretty morbid obesity, um, you got to think of that whole process. If you think of a backyard and you put a dog back there, 
that dog's going to run around the backyard and he's going to beat a dog trail into that backyard, right? And then you take that dog out of there. It takes forever for the grass to grow back up where you can not tell that there was a dog back there anymore. Right. So a metabolically broken person has beaten a very bad metabolic dog trail in their backyard, right? So someone that is of that ilk that tries to enact Tim Ferriss's Sunday cheat day, um, what's going to happen with that person is they're going to go off the rails uh, because they've beaten this metabolic dog trail and they will reactivate it. It takes nothing to open those pathways back up again. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Mike. Whereas someone I- like you that's been more fit and just got a little bit out of shape and is not metabolically broken, introducing that kind of cheat day actually expands your metabolic headroom and your metabolic flexibility and allows the other aspect of the diet that is more regimented and strict to function better. For someone that has come a long way that was metabolically broken in the past, that can be, you know, like someone that's gone to Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous, been dry for 10 years, have one beer, and then it's all over with. Right, right. You know, so what I told my nutrition, because well, I came in and I hadn't seen her in eight weeks, and I had lost a lot of weight, and she was shocked at it. She's like, wow, this is great. You know, I'm so excited. Tell me everything you did, that kind of stuff. And I said, well, I did everything except I did this cheat day, you know, and she's like, She's like, I'm like, do you recommend that? She's like, say the same. She said the same thing you did. She's like, well, I don't recommend it for most people because they can fall off the wagon. You know, they have one cheat day and then it just becomes two and then they're done. For me, at least, like you said, like it was one cheat day, which was like kind of a, 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 a you know, a breath of fresh air. Like I could just go out and I could go to Chipotle or whatever and have chicken tacos and chips, yep. Coke and whatever. And, and then, but the thing is, though, after a day of doing that, I was totally like, I'm over it. Like, my, I'm like, ugh, like, I don't You're want any car. I'm right. like, just give me, I'm just going to have something light because I just feel bad. And, and it also becomes kind of funny. It sees, like, I, I'll go and I'll show my wife and I'll say, ah, look how high I weighed you know? And she's like, well, nice job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, nice work, you know? And, uh, but then what happens is over the next two days, it all falls off. Like, it takes exactly Monday morning. So Sunday's my cheat day. Monday morning is my, fat way and I call it where I'm like five pounds heavy and then by Wednesday morning I'm at scratch and then Thursday and Friday I'm making new lows substantial right. and which is so it's really interesting how that all fits in um to the whole cheat so so again so I guess what you're saying is the same thing my nutritionist had told me which is for yes, most people very, very context dependent careful who you recommend it to but for people who, are, who aren't who have broken metabolic you know system it right. can be and by the same token um a lot of people that are very metabolically broken that have very poor insulin sensitivity, they, in the initial stages of a diet and metabolic program, will do very well on an Atkins-type diet or a ketogenic-type diet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is these sort of things you got to realize is it's like watching the high tide come in. Mm-hmm. You know, you measure it, and then you measure it again. You go, oh, my God, in two weeks, the whole state's going to be underwater. Mm-hmm. you got to realize that as your metabolism changes, your requirements change also. So during the initial phases, people will get very hooked on a ketogenic diet. But once you get beyond a certain stage and you're no longer that metabolically broken, you actually, by sticking with the one who brung you, mm-hmm. um, you end up slowing down your progress. Once you have restored your insulin sensitivity, you now need to loosen up on that carb restriction 
and become a little bit more metabolically flexible in order to continue your improvements in body composition. Right. So um, everything is context dependent. If you're very metabolically broken and your insulin sensitivity sucks, going ketogenic for you know a few months is going to be the thing. But then once you've gotten to where your insulin sensitivities improve, weight's coming off, you need to trust yourself to start expanding your dietary regimen a little bit. Right. Otherwise, that chronicity is going to induce changes that may undermine you in the long term. And things we don't even understand, changes in your gut microbiome is going to change you know, how, how you metabolize food and how easy it is for you to mobilize body fat. Um, so, you know, something that works at one point in time may not work as well at another because the context has changed. Right, right, right. Um, Justin just messaged me, messaged me, he said he wants to ask just, a question. Just a quick one. I was wondering <laughs> if you'd worked with anyone uh, with type 2 diabetes and, and what sort of um, results you'd seen. A lot, well, we've had a lot of clients that have had type 2 diabetes. And we have had a lot of clients that, um, for all intents and purposes, were cured from it. They went off of their oral hypoglycemics and have gone off statins. Uh, because when you do high-intensity strength training, you're mobilizing a lot of glycogen out of the skeletal muscle, as is discussed in the book. That means glucose has to be brought back in to replace it, which means you have to have more insulin receptors. Insulin sensitivity improves. High-intensity training in general, high-intensity strength training specifically, is tailor-made for reversing type 2 diabetes. So, you know, a carb-controlled diet, whether that be paleo-ketogenic in the initial phases, and high-intensity strength training is a very effective way of reversing type 2 diabetes. So, um, if, if it's okay, I mean, I know this, this is probably the longest interview of your life. And I, apologize. <laughs> right. I look at the clock and I'm like, oh my God. Well, it, it's my fault. I, I tend to be long-winded on every question. And a lot of my interviews go this way and it's my fault. Well, I, and I tend to have a lot of questions, so I guess it's a perfect storm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so my follow-ups have follow-ups. So um, the, the one thing I want to ask you about, I'm, 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 there's one line of question I'd like to, like, to, like to sort of go down. And then uh, Justin, uh, I know he wanted to ask, he's been on your program for about, I don't know, six weeks or so. And I think he has a few sort of personal questions about the program and your thoughts on it. So do, do, can, you, can you spare just a few more minutes so we could... Yeah, um, it is 2.11 right now, as long as I can be done by 2.30. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. We promise. Um, so I, I want to ask you about uh, your, your business, um, your uh, Ultimate Exercise is the name of your, uh, your gym, right? Correct, yes. And, and um, so we're actually a, you know, ostensibly a technology startup show, although we obviously go all over the damn place, as you can probably tell by this interview. Um, but... Uh, so could you tell us a little about your about starting up the business? I mean, is this something that you just said you took your own capital and opened up a location, or did you get some investors or a partner? No, or how? I took my own capital. capital? Um, and it's it really is it's a lemonade stand. It it's a very simple business to run. And it really didn't start out with the intent of it being a business. When I um you know, I, I had an Air Force scholarship for my medical school, so I had to pay back the Air Force, which was not extraordinarily high paying. So when I finally got out 
and started to make a little money, I had always decided I wanted my own equipment in my own home so I could really just have some really cool stuff to work out with. And I decided what pieces I wanted and was going to order them, put them in my house. And as as I was going through this process, I had several friends and acquaintances like, hey, could you, you know, could I, could you train me? I'd pay you to train me. And I started having this notion that, wow, you know, I could actually pay for this equipment by training people and I could have a little training business on the side and that would be fun. And my wife was kind of like, oh, hell no. You're going to do <laughs> that man traits people through the house to do this because it was going to be in this <laughs> bonus room area of the house. And it's like, you go find yourself some space and put the equipment down there and then you can do whatever. So that's what I did. I found 1,200 square foot space, moved the equipment in, um, met a guy when I was at a convention looking at equipment um, that lived close to me that wanted to help me instruct. And I thought, well, we'll just open a personal training place. And, um, you know, I, I took my own funds. We bought, you know, the line of equipment and, you know, some office furniture, hooked the phone up, did all the usual, and started seeing clients. And within probably about 18 months of opening, had, had paid back the debt and was up and running. So are you having, uh, are you going to expand it and open up additional locations? Is it something you want to grow as a business or is this just sort of like a, a really nice way for you to pay for your own personal gym? Uh, I would, you know, I always maintain these, um, the notion of opening up additional locations, uh, because of the peculiarities of my, the fact that I'm an emergency physician and that, um, medicine has kind of gone into hell in a handbasket and you know two young kids yeah yeah i have not overcome the activation energy to open up the next facility and kind of go from there although i would like to make that transition to where you know i had additional facilities and was doing less of emergency medicine and more of this right Um, but i've not yet gone there and i've had this place open since 1997 so um, it's been stuck at that level for a while. I mean, it sounds to me like, I mean, if you could pay back the initial debt in 18 months yep. that with a little bit of marketing magic or whatever that you could, you know, probably, and maybe just a little bit of, you know, sort of smart debt financing that you could end up having three to five of them within a couple of years paying, paying in, in more or less operating in the black. I mean, do you think that would be possible? Yes, I do. Like, yeah. I mean, so, my main yeah. issue is just, um, you know, emergency medicine is a group practice. So there's, you know, obligations to my partners that still have to be met. And just, it's not a financial thing. It's more of a time and energy thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a small town that I'm in. The next closest town is probably 45, 50 minutes away where I would open a second facility. And it's just, um, you know, yeah, you'd, have, you'd be driving back and forth there. That's a time killer. That would be brutal. Correct. It's just, you know, it's just, uh, um, but things are getting bad enough in medicine now where the, the motivation to, to jump in that direction is getting higher every day. Can, can I, I know this is totally off topic, but I, you, you've, you've just piqued <laughs> my curiosity. I can't, I can't help but ask, but, and then I'll, and I'll turn the floor over to Justin and he can ask about the, the training program. So as a doctor, you know, you said things have gone to hell in a handbasket and become a real problem. Could you maybe give us a, just a quick, I don't know, five minute or 
agreement, whatever uh, explanation of, from a doctor's perspective, what has happened and why is it a, why is it bad for the medical practitioners? Um, I think the best way to answer that question for your listenership is if they can spare some time to go on YouTube and uh, just put my name in, Doug McGuff, MD, mm-hmm. and a lecture that I did that was recorded called Fitness, Health, and Liberty. Okay. It gives the entire history starting in the Great Depression of how we got from where we were to where we are. Okay. I and mean, it's called Fitness, Health, Fitness, Health, and Liberty? Fitness, Health, and Liberty. Yes. Okay. All right. Because that sounds. And that will kind of run through it. But um, for my practice in particular, we are under um, a law called EMTALA, mm-hmm. Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. It was passed mm-hmm. in 1986. And it basically mandates that anyone that presents to the emergency department, regardless of their ability or intention to pay for services, must be seen and evaluated. Mm-hmm. And that's created a a perfect it's just uh it's a nightmare scenario in the emergency department where you are still tasked with managing and caring for life and limb threatening illness but then you do it in the concept in the context of this gigantic sea of humanity that is in with non-urgent and many times not even medical issues Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, every day I go to work, we have a 20 bed ER, all 20 beds are full. Um, we got 10 or more hall bed patients sitting in the hallways and 20 people in the waiting room. It's just overflowing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and every emergency department in the country is that way because of the economic signal distortions, which have occurred. Um, and the affordable care act is not really, it's basically just taken that whole concept and made participation in it mandatory. Um, it's not really offered any economic solutions whatsoever. So it's, it's just a nightmare scenario out there right now. And it's really hurting your business overall? Uh, in terms of medicine, you mean? Yeah. I mean, are you, since you're a partner in a business, I mean, is it the kind of thing that puts a lot of financial pressure? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, probably, you know, on any given day, as much as 70% of the workload that we're doing is uncompensated. Wow. That is huge. I was expecting the worst yeah. case. So, so, uh, and, and was that, okay, well, look, I, I won't follow. I, cause I know Justin has some questions and it'd be unfair to give, not give him a shot. Yeah. So. I mean, if they go look that lecture up, if they want to hear my thoughts on that sort of stuff, it's, uh, that's probably articulates it as well as anything. Okay, great. Well, all right. Well, Justin, <laughs> Ask your questions. You gotta love it. Well, you've like you, you've asked this really weighty question that's like really deep and kind of thoughtful, and and now I'm going to ask stuff about myself. I don't know how well that's going to roll after this. Oh, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Well, Justin has actually been following the program for what yeah. a month and a half, two months, so he's got personal experience with it, and I'm sure he's yeah, six, really six weeks. But I've just missed this last this last week, and um, I'm I'm actually kind of noticing that I'm that thing that you were describing where it kind of activates you and makes you feel like doing things. Uh, I feel like yes. just one week without it, I, you know, I'm already kind of missing it. Um, but yes. um, in, in the five weeks that I've, that I've done it, um, I haven't managed to get below, I don't know, four to five minutes per exercise. So I'm kind of continuously doing that. And I wonder, is that yeah. that they just started me at a, a, a weight that was way too low and they're being very kind of, you know, um, 
delicate about like increasing my weight. Is that is that the right way to do it? Is that the way you do it? I mean, yeah, it, different places have different philosophies, and I think what they're doing is they're taking a very long term orientation with you because you know we talked about the equipment having limitations in terms of your progression over a longer span of time and what staves that off um, for the longest period of time is for you to have a very good mastery of how to behave when you're on the equipment and how to um, use a given weight to bring as much intensity and fatigue to your musculature. It's a very internalized process. And if you rush someone through that by raising their weights too quickly and dragging their time under load, time until you reach failure, down too soon, then that person, you know, when you fatigue that quickly, there's a lot of panicky behavior that undermines the whole process that's just instinctual. And if you don't spend the right amount of time teaching someone how to subvert those sort of instinctive behaviors, that point where the equipment becomes a rate limiting factor comes much too early in the process. So my guess is, is they're taking their time with you to give you good mastery of how to use the equipment as a tool for getting at your musculature. Interesting. And is that the same approach that you take with your clients? Uh, we try to, um, although we probably run up to the meaningful weight more quickly than some places, but a lot of that has to do with how well we have tweaked the equipment in terms of low friction and strength curves and things like that. So, um, But I think that the approach that they're taking with you is never a mistake. It's always um, time well invested in the long term. One of the things that uh, another thing that they've they've mentioned is that they like to work with 90 second that they kind of target 90 second exhaustion cycles. And I think you you mentioned uh, 45 seconds. Um, is there what, what's the reason for the difference in that? Well, really, it can float anywhere between 45 seconds and three minutes being ideal for any given person. What we find, though, is if once we get to a meaningful weight with a given client, what will happen is they will be recruiting their muscle fibers, their motor units in a very sequential fashion. And then a given individual will start to claim an ideal time under load. And they'll start to, that will start to become evident for you on your workout card. Over the next several weeks on chest press, you may find that once you get to really meaningful weights, you almost always fail at one minute and 41 seconds. And on pull down, it may be one minute and 53 seconds. And on leg press, it may be slightly over two minutes. But what will happen is what is ideal for you will start to organically express itself. Because when you're aggressively recruiting and fatiguing muscle, you're going through different motor units that have different endurance capacities. And you're stacking those end to end like boxcars on a train. And that will result in a very specific expression of time under load. And once you find that, then you just gradually progress weight over time within that given time under load. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And um, I also know that you just going back to the, the whole concept of the big five exercises. Um, how 
I noticed in some of the vid your videos on YouTube, your trainers use other exercises than those big yes. five exercises. How do the trainers determine what exercises to move on to and how do they even learn that in the first place? What we kind of have is a subdivision of the equipment that I have available in my facility. So um, we'll start people out on a very basic big five type movement, but then um, within a few weeks, we have like an A and B routine that we break people down into that subdivides the available equipment in the facility. And what that is will vary from one facility to the next, depending on the equipment they have available. But it's a way of slicing and dicing different movements um, to cover all the musculature of your body, but do it in a way that's kind of conservative towards your recovery ability. Okay. So, you know, I don't have a leg extension and leg curl in my place, so that's not part of what I do. But some places, you know, one week they'll have you doing leg press and the next week they may have you doing leg extension and leg curl um, just based on what they have available. And what it is is not real important. I mean, it's very easy to cover all the musculature in your body using any variety of movements. Um, what's important is that it's done in a way where the, the volume of the work relative to the intensity is recoverable from one workout to the next so that you can show progress. Okay. Well, I do have a couple of other questions, if you don't mind. Just I know we've got like four minutes left. I'll try and get them in. So I guess one of the big questions um, that I was thinking, and I think everyone asks me when I tell them this, like, if this is so good, why isn't everyone doing it? Uh, because it's hard as hell. <laughs> um, you know, brushing your teeth is good. And I can tell you, working in the ER, there are a ton of people that don't. <laughs> um, there, no, I think really, truly the answer is, and that's kind of why I really like this and why I really love my clients and I love my business. Um, I have people that are coming to pay me good money to make them really hurt and suffer because it's good for them and it gives them an outcome that they are looking for. This is for the one percenter. This is for the people that are willing to do hard things in order to have good things. And I really like that. And that's why it's not so broadly popular. But yet it seems, in my mind, I mean, being an especially lazy person as I am, it seems so optimal to me to just go in once a week for half an hour. Yeah. So it's a and, bit of a... And maybe the real answer is that me and, and the people in my field that do this sort of thing, maybe we just suck at marketing and we need someone that's good at it to, to grab the torch for us. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, to me, it seems like it's something that ought to have a much broader appeal and a much broader audience. Um, but it doesn't. And I've always written it off too well. It's just really hard. Um, but but maybe our marketing just sucks. Yeah, well, um, Jason, are you still there? I am. Yep. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, Doug, it's, it, this has been a really, really interesting and fascinating interview. It's been excellent listening to you and Jason um, talking about it. I'm so glad that Jason led oh, the nice. interview. Yeah, that's been fun. I love this sort of stuff. Yeah, we, uh, this, this is our longest interview by far. Yeah. Is, <laughs> well, you, you found the Uber geek then, I guess. <laughs> well, because we yeah. didn't even talk about the, 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 the subject at hand for the first, I don't know, hour. Yeah. <laughs> That was this great. Uh, no, it was, it was fascinating. It was a fascinating uh, interview. It was great talking to you. Um, 
I probably could talk for another two hours with you about stuff. I have all these other things I could follow up on, but uh, I guess we all got lives. We got to get back well, to. Well, but- yeah. If you guys are ever, <laughs> if you ever hurting for content in the future, just call me again. I can burn up two hours easy. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, you know, really, really appreciate you spending as much time as you have with us. It's, it's, oh, it's been- my pleasure. And I wish you the best of luck with the, with the book and the, and the business. And uh, I guess, you know, we'll, we'll maybe in touch in the future, too. We'll see how Justin does. You know, he's, uh, this, is a, this is his big new fitness uh, push. So we'll see in a few more months how it all, all right. pays off. Let me so, ask one thing or else my wife's going to bust my chops for this. Sure. I always forget. Is, uh, if anyone wants to access my services at all, probably the easiest way to do it is at drmcguff.com, drmcguff.com. Um, all my consulting services, link to the blog, link to the book, all that stuff can be gotten through there. Yeah. Do you do consulting services in addition to your gym? So if people are remote and they live in other parts of the country or the world. I do. I do. I do for people's own personal training, for people that are wanting to start gyms like mine, um, just for questions in general about, you know, training. Um, I, I cover all aspects of that. So, yes. Perfect. Well, great, because we have listeners from everywhere, so that'll, that'll, that'll be, I'm sure there'll be people who are going to be interested in speaking with you. Well, cool. thanks again. Thanks so much. Have a great day. And, awesome. Uh, you guys, too. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, thanks so uh, much. Thank All right. All right. That's right. a wrap. We're out. Thanks. Nice.